Well, good day and welcome to the online ministry for St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. My name's Matt. It's great you're joining with us today. Uh, this ministry has been prepared for Sunday, the 5th of March, 2023. Friends, hear these words of scripture as we begin. From Psalm 27. My heart says to the Lord, Your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. For you have been my help. Well, uh, that is the character of our Lord indeed. And so we go now to a time of praise as we begin. Well, as we turn to God's word, let me pray as we do that. God, our Father, help us to hear your Son. Enlighten us with your word, that we might find the way to your glory. 
Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, our Bible readings begin today uh, in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through to 6. Our psalm for today is Psalm 51, 1 through to 12. And our New Testament passage that I'll share from in just a moment is from Acts 9, verses 1 through to 20. Acts 9, 1 through 20. Pause the video, read that now. I read it with people you are watching with, and then we'll come back in a moment, and I'll speak from that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to see you in your word clearly, to hear your words and respond in the way that we need to, letting our lives be shaped by you, we pray. Amen. Well, how good is it that God has given us an eye for beauty? We can appreciate beauty in, in the world around us. We see natural beauty. We also see beauty in the things that people make. Uh, and most of us can appreciate something like uh, a beautiful sunset or a beautiful house or a beautiful garden, beautiful car, or maybe a beautiful person. But another type of beauty that we can see and appreciate uh, is when we see this, we see a spectacular transformation, perhaps. It might be in some of those things I've just said. We see the sky transform at nighttime. Maybe we take delight in watching the block and seeing this derelict house turn into this beautiful 21st century modern living masterpiece. Or maybe we sit back and admire our hard work as we see our garden that's been transformed and been given new, colourful, vibrant life. Maybe it's as we watch our friend who's been working hard on their project car turn this old hunk of scrap metal into something that is now their, or even our dream car. Or maybe just seeing a friend go through their own uh, fitness or weight loss transformation. And when we see spectacular transformations like all these things, it can cause us to sit back and go, wow, how good is this? Well, last week in Acts chapter 8, we saw a transformation, a transformation in the life of this Ethiopian eunuch guy. He's on this, traveling on this long desert road, and he comes to, comes to with the help of uh, Philip, recognize Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Straight after that, here in Acts 9, we find this parallel story of Saul also traveling on a long journey. And today we see that he too has been transformed. And of all the transformations we see around us in our world, I think this one here in Acts 9 is perhaps the most wonderful transformation of all. Of course, we know what's happening here. This is the, con the, the conversion of Saul. All right, it's no surprise what's going to happen as we see the story play out before us. And in only a few chapters time, Luke, the author of Acts, he'll go on to talk about this Saul as Paul. Right? He's given a new name to match his kind of new life in Jesus. And I think this transformation is one worth us just pausing and reading with fresh eyes. And I think that because for those of us who belong to Jesus, and I'm aware that not everyone watching will, will consider yourselves in that category. But for those of us who do, Saul's story here in Acts 9 is also, in a way, our story. Not that we all go through uh, road to Damascus type experiences, but what we see here is a wonderful reminder of God's grace for us. We're reminded of our emptiness, our need of God, and the greatness of Jesus. And so let's take a look at this story together. 
Now, throughout the book of Acts, uh, we, see, we see the Christian church growing, sometimes by thousands at a time. Sometimes it's by the one lost sheep coming in, like we saw last week. But whether big numbers or small, the Christian church, the early Christian church, has someone who wants to destroy them and the faith. And so in verses 1 and 2, we're reintroduced to this character, Saul, this callous, self-righteous, bigoted murderer. He's a Jew's Jew. He, he thought that the, uh, those who followed Jesus, he thought they were a deadly contagion, one that's now spread out beyond Jerusalem. And so while people were giving their lives all around him to Jesus, verse 1, have a look with me, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any, who, any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, don't be fooled. He's not some simple legal prosecutor. No, no. He's more like an executioner. Right? That's his end goal. He wants Christians dead. And in, in this end, he's like a dog with a bone. He doesn't give up. So convicted of it is he of what he believes that he's willing to, to take this two-week journey on foot. Right? It's over 250Ks. And what we see now, as he's traveling, is the beginning of a wonderful, dramatic transformation. It's a big pivoting, po- pivoting point in the book of Acts. And in fact, I think it's a, a monumental uh, moment, a monumental occasion in world history as we see the gospel, the good news of Jesus, go out to the world. And what we see here in this instance with Saul is that before the risen Lord Jesus, all people stand humbled. Have a look at verse 3 with me. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Right, there's a blinding flash and all of a sudden in an instant, Saul is in the dirt, quivering, shaking. And he's heard this possibly divine voice, maybe. He's not sure who's speaking, so he asks. And in reply... This is what he gets. Verse 5. I am Jesus who you are persecuting. I want you to imagine for me what it would be like for Saul to hear these words. I mean, if you're Saul, you've committed your life to, to, to finding and getting rid of those people who, who speak about the resurrection of a dead man, a man who claimed to be God's son on earth. I mean, everything in your life has been opposed to this. But in this moment, you're brought to your knees. You've heard for yourself the words of the very person you're trying to erase from the history books. And so if you were Saul, how would you feel in that moment? Well, in this moment, Saul is confronted with the most profound truth in the world. It's a truth that changes everything about the way we live. The thing that Saul so fiercely rejected has now become the most inconvenient truth. Jesus is alive. Now, one of the most inconvenient truths for us of recent times has, of course, been COVID. Right? It's been a thing that sent shockwaves throughout a society and even practically broke the world for a couple of years. But as much as we thought COVID impacted our lives... It doesn't compare with the truth that's laid out before Saul now. 
Jesus is alive. See, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is where the Christian faith stands or falls. Without the resurrection, there is no church. There is no body of Christ. Now for Saul, being confronted with the the resurrection of Jesus, it's the moment that changes everything. Before the glory of the risen Jesus, he is brought to his knees. And just as those around him are speechless, so is he without a word as Jesus speaks to him and directs him where to go. Go into the city. And in verse 8, when he tries to stand up, he finds that he can't see. It's like he's being stripped of the world around him. And I think that we're meant to see his, uh, his new physical reality as something that's also deeply symbolic of his spiritual reality. So he's forced by the light of Jesus to see his own true blindness and his need of God's mercy and grace. It's in this moment that the previously zealous and active Saul, he becomes passive. His pride is now replaced with humble dependence. Dependence on his friends around him to help him up and walk. But even more than that, a dependence on God. The God who holds all things in his hands. And it's in this way that that Saul's experience on the road to Damascus is also the experience for any of us who call on the name of Jesus and profess him as Lord ourselves. Now, for some of you who, who do know Jesus, your, your experience of coming to know him, it's probably more like that of Peter than Paul, right? A slow coming to faith over, over many, many years rather than this kind of quick and sudden conversion experience. But no matter who we are, like Saul, we need, when we see Jesus face to face, we need, to, we need to see that it should bring us to our knees in humility as we see the weight of our own sin before God. How undeserving we are of his love. And yet how he has shown us grace and mercy, a completely undeserved gift. And in that way, we are in the same boat that Saul is in. When we look at Jesus, we see our own emptiness. And his greatness. And if you're here and perhaps you're watching, maybe this is the first time you're watching. Perhaps you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. If that's you, then this is the part that I want you to to hear, I want you to focus on. Because for Saul, he is forced to make sense of the, the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. Now for a long time he doubted that it happened. But he knew that if Jesus had, has risen from the dead, that changes everything. It means that Jesus wasn't just an ordinary man. It means that he was God's Messiah. It means that his death was to deal with our sin, our wickedness before God, just as he claimed. It means that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the one who came to give us true relationship and new life with the Father in heaven. And so I want to ask you, what are you going to do about that? What do you do with that inconvenient truth? What do you make of the apostle's claim? What do you make of Saul's claim that Jesus is alive? Well, for all this now, the news that Jesus is alive and he's in heaven as Lord, this is something that will not just humble us, 
but it's something that will transform our lives just as it did Saul's. And before we keep reading, before we go on to the end and see how Saul was transformed, where first we, we find this sheen, scene shift and we meet this guy named Ananias in, in verse 10. And he's a guy who's already come to faith in Jesus. But what we see in the next few verses is that knowing the Lord Jesus is risen, it doesn't just humble us, no, no. It also brings us to trust in him. And so in verse 10, we meet Ananias. He's a guy in the city of Damascus, the place where Saul was headed to. And now Jesus comes to speak to him in a vision. And notice the immediate difference between the two responses to hearing the voice of the Lord. Back in verse 5, Saul said, Who are you, Lord? But here in verse 10, Ananias says, Yes, Lord. Do you see that difference? It's, I think it's beautiful. There's an immediate recognition and willingness to listen. And I think this is a response that has been a massive challenge to my heart over the last week. As I reflect on how slow I can sometimes be to, to be willing to listen and be willing to respond to God. I think this, this would be an amazing Christian prayer that we could pray for ourselves. That as we hear God speak to us through his word, that we would be quick to acknowledge that what we're reading is actually his words. That we would be quick to listen and in doing so, be ready to obey. But of course, while it can be somewhat easy to, to want to do that in theory, it can be much harder in practice, can't it? And I think we can relate to Ananias in what we see in the next few verses, because it can be hard to trust God. But it can be hard to trust that he knows best when our experiences, when our reasoning, and when our emotions are telling us something different. You see, while Ananias is quick to say, yes, Lord, when he learns that what Jesus wants him to do is go to Saul, this Christian killer, he starts to doubt that the Lord knows best. In verse 13, he says, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority of the chief priests to arrest all those who call on your name. He says, Lord, are you sure? Lord, I've had experience here before. I don't think this is going to work out well for me. But verse 15 and 16. The Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he, how much he must suffer for my name. Our view of things is so limited. We can't hope to comprehend all that God is doing in the world in its entirety. But if Jesus is alive after dying on the cross for our sin, Knowing that means that we can trust that what God says and that what God does is good. Even if we can't see or make sense of it right now. Romans 8.28, this is what Paul says later. He says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And for Ananias, his question is, why would God ever want me to go near this this Christian murderer like Saul? Answer? Because God knows best. Because, because God can do the impossible. 
Saul may be the strongest anti-Christian that's known at the time. He may be coming with all the authority of the chief priests. But God is the one who has ultimate authority in our world and holds all things in his hands and direct things how he pleases. And Saul was the one that God was choosing to use as his spokesperson, as his messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's this promise that we see play out through pretty much the rest of Acts and a lot, quite a lot of the New Testament as well. And so for, having, for Ananias, uh, having the, the reassurance from the Lord that this is part of his good plan, Ananias goes and finds Saul. And do you notice here how he greets him? Can you see the word that he uses there in verse 17? Brother. Brother. You know, there's that saying, uh, you, can, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. I think if, if Ananias had a choice, he would never have chosen Saul to be someone he considered family. But when Ananias places his hands on Saul, he expresses recognition that Jesus has welcomed him into his family. And whoever Jesus has accepted was Ananias' brother no matter what prejudice or grievance he had against him. I think what a big challenge this is for us as we look around at perhaps people we meet with, as other Christians, perhaps those who we sit in church with. What a challenge. Should I have a disposition of wanting to protect myself and, and hold people at a distance and hold grudges? Or should I be quick to embrace people and quick to reconcile? Do we think that we actually know better? Or do we need to, like Ananias, be working out what it looks like to trust Jesus here? Well, Ananias goes to the now humbled and dependent Saul and he brings to him the words of Jesus. And what we see is that Saul is now transformed by the Lord. Verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. Now, in the account of uh, his conversion, we find, in fact, there's there's three accounts in in Acts. In in the one in chapter 26, we find out there's a little more conversation between Saul and Ananias that happened here. And so, for Saul, having spent time in prayer, verse 11 here, having, having been welcomed into the fellowship of the Lord's people by Ananias in verse 17, and also, as chapter 26 tells us, having been told by Ananias to call on the name of Jesus that his sins might be washed away, he's baptized. Now, why baptism, do you ask? Well, because for the adult believer, water baptism is an outward sign that it's a public declaration of repentance. We saw that in in Peter's speeches back in chapters 2 and 3 in Acts. It's a way of saying, I am repenting. I am not my own. I belong to Jesus. And I think repentance is emphasized more than the necessary saving faith here because of what Saul was struck by on the road to Damascus. He knew that Jesus died. And for us, this means that his death was in our place. It means that he has paid what we can't for our sins before God. But for Saul, the biggest thing that he needed to to see was the resurrection. He needed to see that Jesus is alive. Because if Jesus is God the Son, 
If he is alive, then he is not simply our saviour, but he is also our Lord. And if he's our Lord, he's the one that, that we owe our lives to. He's the one the Father has given all authority. And so we repent, living now not for ourselves, but living for the one who both made us, loves us, and died for us. Because of his grace and mercy, we can say no to self, and we can say yes to him. And so a life of repentance, it's a transformed life. Now, Saul started out his journey to Damascus, wanting to head into those Damascus synagogues. And ironically, now that he's been transformed, this transformation, it means that he still went to those synagogues. Yet, rather than seeking to persecute, imprison, and kill these people who profess that Jesus is the Son of God, ironically, he goes in there and he proclaims that very thing which he sought to destroy. Verse 19 and 20. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And it's, it's not as though he's uh, choosing to take up an easier vocation. No, because if we keep reading down into verse 25, we see that the other Jews then try and kill him. Right? The hunter becomes the hunted here. And so he has to flee the city. His friends literally lower him out of a window in a basket down the wall, down the side. I mean, how demoralizing for the once great Saul. But if Jesus is Lord, then Saul is willing to do hard things. He is willing to do things that, that are a risk to him personally. But things that glorify the one who died for him. His life is transformed because he has a firm grasp on the grace of God that he's shown us in Jesus. On the road to Damascus, Saul learned that there is no one too difficult for God to save. There is no one who is beyond his grace. That includes you and it includes me. And what, what Saul learns here, the Apostle Paul never forgets. And so may we never forget this either. May we never forget that for the sake of the people that God's placed in our lives, who we have the privilege of sharing the good news of Jesus with. And may we, ne may we never forget that for ourselves as well. Listen to these words of Saul, then now Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Friends, I pray that this story of Saul's transformation and these words of 1 Timothy I've just shared, that they would penetrate deep into our hearts so that we never forget the sovereign and transforming grace of our risen Saviour and Lord. The grace of God that can transform even one so utterly opposed to his will and use him to speak to the nations the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that your grace is sufficient, that your grace is big and wide, 
No one is outside of your power to save. No one is, is too simple. No one is too far gone who, who turns and calls in the name of Jesus. Father, help us to, to really understand that. Place that deep within our hearts so that we would not be prejudiced, that we would not give up on people that we know who don't yet know you. Father, you know all those who, who you'll call to yourself, and we pray that you might be merciful in using us to that end as well. Father, we ask that in all this, you would be glorifying yourself, helping us to remember our own humility before you and our need of our Saviour Jesus. Help us to be trusting you in what you say and you do, to know that you are always good and working for our good. Father, help us to live for you, to give up our lives for you, because your Son, our Lord and Saviour Jesus, gave up his life for us. Amen. Well, friends, let's go to a time of praise. Oh,
Well, friends, we come now to a time of prayer. And so in a moment, that blue screen will come up. Uh, pause the video, spend time in prayer. Feel free to pray for some of those things. But there's also plenty of things uh, in your own life, I'm sure, that are, that are going on. Uh, which would be great to bring before the Lord, trusting him. There's plenty of things in our country that are going on at the moment and things in the life of our church as well. Hopefully you've got a, a copy of the bulletin. Uh, if you get our emails, uh, have a look at that and be committing all things to the Lord in prayer. Uh, let's go to a time of prayer and then we'll finish with a song.
Well, as we finish up, I want to leave you with those words I read uh, from 1 Timothy 1 verse 13 again. Paul says, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. What a great hope. What a great comfort. What a great and marvellous grace that our God has given us in Jesus. We'll see you next time.